1: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, the latest on the situation in the Middle East as tensions continue to mount between the U.S. and Iran. Also, deepfake video. Facebook says it's going to ban deepfakes. How much of a threat does this technology pose? Plus, frustration from Canadian small business owners when it comes to dealing with the Canada Revenue Agency. How do we fix these problems? Is there any history that would
2: indicate that it was remotely possible that this kind gentleman, this diplomat of great order, Qasem Soleimani, had traveled to Baghdad for the idea of conducting a peace mission? I, I, I made you reporters laugh this morning. That's fantastic.
1: Yeah, look, that was uh, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo this morning uh, defending the uh, strike that took out Iran's top military commander, General Soleimani. And look, no one should be under any illusions. Uh, Soleimani was a bad dude doing bad things, and we should be under uh, no illusions about what he was likely doing in Iraq. Probably not a diplomatic mission. So at least in terms of the the question of whether the the strike was justifiable, I mean, I, I would argue that it is. Whether it was wise or prudent, maybe that's a different question. Where this all goes from here, I guess, is another question. Was the death of Soleimani the the goal? That this guy needed to be taken out? He got taken out and that's that? Or is it a step towards something else? What is the U.S. policy at this point regarding Iran? What does success look like vis-a-vis Iran going forward? What about the, the broader Middle East, which to varying degrees is in some chaos, Uh, Adding to all of that chaos is the question of whether U.S. troops are going to remain in Iraq. And uh, certainly that has the potential of playing into Iran's hands. So we had this whole mess of confusion yesterday where it appeared as though the U.S. had sent a formal letter to Iraq announcing that U.S. troops are going to be pulled out. Then American officials came back and said that was a mistake. That was a draft letter. It did not mean to be sent. Today... Iraq's outgoing prime minister says the U.S. has no alternative and must pull his troops out of Iraq. So amid everything going on with Iran, now you've got all of this this drama happening uh, with regard to the U.S. presence in Iraq. So there is a lot of confusion around this. And and certainly I think for American allies like Canada, there is some confusion about what it is the Americans are trying to achieve and where this all goes from here. Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, Stephanie Carvin, Assistant Professor of International Relations at the Norman uh, Patterson School of International Relations, uh, Carleton University. Professor Carvin, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
0: Hey, thanks for having me on again. In terms of the
1: the decision uh, that got us into this situation, taking uh, General Soleimani, I mean, there's the question of whether it was lawful, justified, obviously, but also, I mean, whether it was wise, whether it was prudent. I mean, how, how do you come at it?
0: Well, that's exactly the big question that, you know, was kind of fueling social media right now and a lot of the public commentary about this. Um, like, I, I, I think it's been said, but just to be clear, I don't think anyone's really mourning uh, Soleimani, General Soleimani, right. outside of perhaps Iran. He was someone who was a brutal uh, butcher of people. He orchestrated things like the suppression of, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in Syria. Uh, he was very much a part of the efforts to kill American troops in Iraq um, and all other kinds of horrible things so um, was it justified I mean probably I mean um, it it it, I I don't really see that the the bigger question is was this a smart idea and you know for that you you can we kind of have to step back and be like okay well, let's do like a cost-benefit analysis of this well are there any benefits and you know in Kind of conventional deterrence theory You would say, well, you know, if someone keeps doing something to you You have to eventually compel them to stop in some way mm-hmm. And so, you know, we saw the United States strike back In a very, very visceral way And, in fact, killing this person um, But then you have the costs And, you know, so, so 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 potential benefit would be Okay, well, maybe Iran has had its hand slapped it'll It'll, you know, stop doing these kinds of things But the costs are that, you know That's not really how Iran works And, you know, there's probably now going to – there's probably now an increased risk to a number of things. One, um, an increased risk of retaliatory strikes, which we've heard – I don't think we're headed to World War III. I know I remember when this happened a couple days ago. World War III was trending. Yeah. It, it's probably not going to be that. Um, you know, uh, Iran has a very weak conventional military. Their strength is fighting asymmetrically. So I think what we can expect is a series of perhaps terror attacks against Western interests, particularly American interests in the Middle East, particularly in Saudi Arabia, because Iran likes to hit Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia is pretty bad at hitting back, um, as well as potential we could see things like cyber attacks. Uh, Iran has dramatically increased its cyber capabilities since about 2010, and uh, we have found them in places like universities, we found them in critical infrastructures like dams, they've attacked banks. So that would be, you know, I wouldn't expect necessarily destruction, but I could definitely see some kind of cyber attack creating a lot of disruption for a lot of people. And, And one of the concerns you would have from a national security perspective is that a lot of times these disruptive attacks don't respect borders. They could very much affect Canada, even if they were targeted at the United States. So, all that being said, um, you know, I think there, there's substantial costs here, and we haven't even got to the fact that the United States might actually now be kicked out of Iraq entirely, which would give Iran an even greater. Uh, hand in what goes on in that country, which which would probably be bad from a Western perspective.
1: Right. I mean, yeah, it, certainly if, if um, I, don't, I don't think the Americans anticipated that uh, this decision was going to lead to actually furthering Iranian interests in the Middle East, but it could play out that way. There was a whole bunch of confusion yesterday, as you're well aware, where it appeared as though a letter had been sent officially withdrawing U.S. troops from from Iraq. Then American officials came out and said there was a draft letter. It was sent in mistake. Today, it sounds like the Iraqi government Government is is treating it as an actual letter I mean it's it's just a mass in a very serious situation
0: yeah I mean if anything has highlighted the dysfunction of the Trump administration it was yesterday when you know I was following this story as it broke the fact that this letter exists that it was sent to a, it, it was you know, they're saying it was a draft letter this was a letter that apparently was sent to the Iraqis this apparently was a real policy and then you know I guess it conflicted with what the president was saying, was that he was going to put all these sanctions on Iraq and things like that. Um, and now the Iraqis are saying, no, we, we think this was a legit offer and we're going to accept that. So yeah. I mean, it's just it, it, the mind boggles that this was the the way this played out. And it just goes to show you just how kind of – You know, they're making what is one of the most consequential decisions about U.S. foreign policy by the seat of their pants. Like, there's no process here. There's no guidance here. There's no thinking of long-term consequences. There's no consultation with allies. And I think actually this is going to be one of the long-term effects of this, and this is one of the things I worry about, is that the fact that Trump doesn't seem to care about what other countries think and that one day in the future, if America actually needs its allies to you know, do do something, accomplish something that allies are going to turn around and say, look, we can't depend on you because you don't talk to us. And you make these crazy decisions that impact us without any consultation whatsoever. So how can we support what you're doing? So ultimately, I think this is having a really bad effect on, uh, you know, there's the immediate impact, the immediate chaos, the immediate risk of, a series of attacks now uh targeting the west there's the problem that the u s may actually be kicked out of Iraq, but there's also long term consequence of just fracturing the kind of alliance between Western nations that has effectively protected our countries, particularly Canada, for so very long it this is it's It's a pretty dark situation for like what are we at like day seven of the new year um yeah. just I mean, like, I know we're supposed to have dry January, but man, I, I, it, it like, this, this, this whole situation is a mood. Yeah, no kidding. Well,
1: and I mean, you know, this comes on the heels, obviously, of the decision by the Trump administration to basically uh, abandon the Kurds uh, to, to get out of Syria. You know, coupled with the prospect of the U.S. leaving Iraq altogether, I mean, it, it does raise the prospect of whether Iraq itself can can remain whole, what kind of chaos uh, could potentially be uh, be unleashed there. I mean, you know, beyond whatever conflict might be brewing between the U.S. and Iran, I mean, this this is going to impact the entire region.
0: Right, exactly. Because, I mean, the reason Canada is in the region is to help Iraq fight off the Islamic State. Right. Um, This is the whole thing. So if all Western countries are forced to leave because the situation has deteriorated, it's not just that Iran will have a greater hand in uh, Iraq's affairs. It's also the fact that the Islamic State will be able to come back and effectively take over the ungoverned spaces of the Middle East. And all of the kind of counterterrorism that we've been trying to assist the uh, Iraqis with is kind of going to go down the drain. It's really uh, you're right, and you're right. I mean, uh, the the future state of Iraq would be definitely in doubt. Um, the, in the north of the country, you have a Kurdish population that is not particularly friendly to Baghdad at the best of times. You have a, uh, a Shia majority population, but a very substantial Sunni population that is not going to be happy to see Iran there. So it wouldn't also surprise me to see uh, a return of the Islamic State who would take advantage of uh, Sunni discontent in the country, because that's how the Islamic State got its grip going in the first place, mm-hmm. once, um, you united states left in
1: 2010 all right so where does all of this leave canada the the prime minister's clearly been been laying low hasn't really had anything at all to say about this situation we've had a few statements from from the foreign affairs minister but nothing of of real substance what what do you suspect is going on in ottawa these days on this front
0: the prime minister's twitter feed which is not always the best way to do these things um he has actually put out several statements now and it appears that he was working the phones pretty hard yesterday um so he had talks with nato he had talks with uh, the european union european council as well as um we see that um the defense minister has been talking to his counterpart in the united states and, and other and as well as in iraq as well and the foreign minister has been chatting um um, uh, with his Iraqi counterparts as well. So there are, it, there does appear to be a lot of phone calls going back and forth. And I think it was significant yesterday that Canada did not single, uh, signal that it's ready to pull out yet. It did signal that um, it's committed to Iraq, that for, you know, there, it said, look, our, our priority is the, is the safety of our people who are in that region. But it said it, it's committed to Iraq and wants to stay there. And so I think our policy. Is basically to hope that this settles down quickly. Everyone's calling for de-escalation. I-, I do hope that's the best thing we can do, and so I think that this is this is what's important, right? It's it's um, you know uh, trying to call for these kind of de-escalations, hopefully working out some kind of strategy. Uh, so I don't think the prime minister hasn't done. Anything. I think he's actually been on the phone and I think they've been making uh, some pretty hard decisions. There was a picture yesterday on social media of him meeting with Harjit Sajjan as well as the deputy minister of national defense and some generals where they're clearly talking about um, various scenarios uh, as to what could happen and what the situation is. But Uh, I don't think that's been communicated effectively to Canadians, and I think Canadians are concerned that basically nothing's being done when I think actually a lot of phone calls are being made. I think it would be a good idea for him to make a statement sooner rather than later about what has been done and what the Canadian position is, because it has not, you know, we've seen that the statements on Twitter and social media. I have a good idea of where they are, but it's not been well articulated, I think, to the Canadian public. Right. And, you know,
1: as you alluded to earlier, I mean, uh, you know, it doesn't appear as though alliances or, or allies like Canada are a big priority for the Trump administration. Uh, there are some echoes here of, of 2003 and the decision that the Liberal government at the time had to make. I mean, you know, this comes at a time when the, the U.S.-Canada bilateral defense relationship has has been at the forefront. Now we've got this situation coming, kind of coming out of nowhere. Um, so what, what do you think the Liberal government is, is trying to weigh here?
0: Um, I think what they're trying... I think their first priority is... You know, what is the safety of our people? Um, Canada is is the nominal leader of the NATO training mission. We have a, a couple hundred people in the region. I think the protection of those guys is... is- Fundamental to to pretty much everything else. There's probably a national security angle where people are concerned that Hezbollah or other associated groups could be uh, considering engaging in uh, attacks against Western targets abroad or perhaps a cyber target here at home. But um, I think that they're probably focused on those uh, those individuals. And I think the hard, um, you know, the hard thing is going to be is, is is when and if you would pull those individuals out. right Right. um uh and and that would be sending a a pretty dramatic sign canada can't however can't stay there if the u.s is gone um and it's not clear to me if the iraqi parliament the iraqi parliament has signaled that it wants the united states to leave we don't really know what's going to happen there's a lot of internal politics happening there as well if the united states leaves um Canada is dependent on American intelligence. Uh, American forces on the ground are helping to protect Canadian troops while they're doing their uh, mission. So I think we would have to leave as well. Uh, I think it's good that we're signaling that we're willing to stay. But at the end of the day, without the United States there, it, it just absolutely would not be feasible. And we'd probably have to leave.
1: We'll see what happens in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, Professor Carvin, I always appreciate the insight. And thanks so much for make some time for us here.
0: Hey, thanks for having me on.
1: There you go. Stephanie Carvin, assistant professor, international relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. Some thoughts from her on where things stand. Now, we have the defense secretary today, uh, Mark Esper, saying that the U.S. is not leaving Iraq. Uh, So the intent is uh, for the Americans to remain there for now. Uh, But that's just added a whole other level of uncertainty to all of this.
2: Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace
3: will stay on the moon to rest in peace.
1: Now that is a speech that Richard Nixon never actually gave, even though you just heard him giving it there. Uh, A speech that was written for Richard Nixon, had the Apollo 11 mission ended in tragedy. And as impressive as that sounds, to see the video of Richard Nixon delivering this speech that was never delivered, is, is even more impressive. This was a project that was created last year by the MIT Center for Advanced Virtuality. And it's an example of what can be done with deep fake technology. Now, obviously, uh, the folks at the MIT Center for Advanced Virtuality were not trying to fool anybody, but was an example of what could be done with this sort of technology. But they were able to recreate this speech that Richard Nixon never gave and make it appear as though he did. Now, the question that becomes, with that technology, someone with a more sinister agenda, what can they do? What are they capable of? And just how fast this technology has exploded is quite frightening. So How do we even begin to police it? Now, social media is obviously a, a big part of the equation. Uh, it doesn't lead to the creation of these videos necessarily, but it obviously can lead to their, their spread, their proliferation. Uh, Facebook announcing today a new policy regarding deepfake videos. I, I suppose you could call it a ban, but it's it's certainly one that has some loopholes. But I think it is encouraging that Facebook is recognizing the threat here and taking steps to deal with it. So, in a blog post posted last uh, posted last night, Facebook announced that on both Facebook and Instagram, uh, these kinds of videos will be banned. Now, it doesn't apply to videos that are meant as parody. It uh, doesn't apply to other forms uh, of doctored videos made with less sophisticated software. So, th- th- you know, there, there are some loopholes here, but it, it is, uh, I think, a step in the right direction. Now, the question becomes, is even Facebook going to be able to police this? Is Facebook going to be aware whether a video posted on its platform is a deepfake video? Because these videos are getting so good that it can be really, really difficult to tell. And like I say, that, that, is, that is concerning. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about some of the broader issues here. Very pleased to welcome to the program this afternoon, Sam Gregory. He's a program director at Witness, witness.org, an organization that helps people use video and technology to protect and defend human rights. Sam, thanks so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program.
3: Thank you. Glad to join you. Uh, do
1: you believe that this is a step in the, the right direction? What do you make of Facebook's policy?
3: I do think it's a step in the right direction. Um, you know, we've seen over the past year that deep fakes are getting easier to make. Um, they're getting more convincing and, and more likely to fool people. Um, and so getting ahead of the problem is is important. Um, and what Facebook has done here is recognize that uh, increasingly ordinary people will not be able to spot these and that journalists are not well equipped to detect them themselves. So we need a greater responsibility from the platforms to uh, to, to be to be telling us when they spot it and to be um, yeah. taking action, particularly on the most dramatic ones that could cause real harm.
1: Now, I understand you're one of the organizations that, that provided some feedback to Facebook on this. What, what was it that you suggested in terms of policy? So,
3: yeah, so we suggested something pretty close to this, actually. Yeah. Um, and we've spent the last 18 months... Um, talking to people about what they want as solutions, not not only from the platforms, but also technically and, and particularly trying to focus on what people want outside North America and Europe. Um, we just finished some meetings in Brazil and South Africa, and we pretty consistently heard that people uh, wanted to make sure that the platforms told other people what they were seeing, right? You know, when this is an invisible type of manipulation, uh, the platforms are going to be well-placed to detect it in a way that ordinary people aren't. Um, and so we, we channeled that into our, our feedback to Facebook.
1: Well, and, and that is one of the questions, right? Is I mean, is Facebook going to be able to detect uh, whether a video has been been doctored, whether it is a deep fake? Did you Are you confident? How confident should we be?
3: No, and this is where the, where the rubber hits the road on a policy like this. You know, it, it, it sounds good on paper, um, but it's going to be challenging in real life. You know, the way you detect a deep fake is uh, it's kind of a cat and mouse game between the forger and the, the creator of these fakes. Um, and it gets easier and easier to create forgeries and you're constantly competing to detect them. Um, So I think it's gonna be hard for Facebook and and even if they do detect it, they're also gonna have to explain it to people who uh, don't trust the evidence of their lying eyes. They're gonna look at it and they're gonna say, no, it is clearly you know politician X or person X saying something. Um, So I think they have a challenge both on the detection but also the explaining. Um, And there are steps happening in this. There's actually a lot of research happening on how to talk to people about kind of this sort of manipulation and there's investment on the detection side. Facebook has been one of the people putting money into, uh, you know, competitions to build better detection algorithms. But it's, it's certainly going to be challenging both to detect and also to explain. I mean, how much
1: of a threat is it right now? I mean, in, it doesn't appear as though we've had many examples of, of deepfake videos at least used for any kind of political purpose. I, I think a lot of them have been basically putting celebrity images in, into porn clips. I think that's been the, the, the extent of, of how this has been used problematically up until this point.
3: Yeah, so there was a recent survey that found that about 90, it was ninety six percent of deepfakes online were these non consensual sexual images, mm-hmm. and and really there haven't been extensive use in politics, and I and I think we have to be careful not to to, to, to make people think that they're surrounded by these seamlessly faked images. Uh, you're not at the moment. It's it's not true. Uh, what is true is that it's getting easier to do this. It's getting easier to do it um, in a way that doesn't require a lot of technical capability. And, you know, just in the last few weeks, we've heard signs that companies like the the company behind TikTok, uh, Snapchat are starting to build this into their tools. You know, as soon as it becomes available to more people, I think you have a problem that, uh, that will be vastly greater than now. But I, but I do think it's important to remind people that we're actually surrounded by what you might call shallow fakes right now, which are mm. these, you know, simple, miscontextualized, simple edited videos that are a far bigger problem than deep fakes if we were saying, you know, what is the problem right now today?
1: Right. And I mean, you know, in terms of the the technology, there's there's no putting that genie back in the bottle. Right. I mean, we this, this is kind of the reality now. And in, in a couple of years, I mean, the technology will have, have improved even more. I mean, it, it, it doesn't seem as though there's any way to stop that.
3: Yeah, I think, you know, assuming that we can go backwards is is would, wouldn't get us anywhere. What we can do is. You know, prepare better. And and that's, you know, it's one of the reasons I I think it's a good thing that Facebook has come out ahead of this is, you know, frankly, as someone who's dealt with, you know, crises of misinformation around the world over the past decade, the platforms were woefully behind, right? In you know, the U.S., in in Burma, Myanmar, in Brazil. So seeing them ahead of it is good, but um, we're going to need concerted action. It's going to be about how do you talk to people about you know, how they look at an image. It's going to be about what the platforms tell people about what they detect. Um, And it's going to be about also what we ask for from people who build tools for this, right? If you build a tool to create a fake image, are you including a way to detect that? Mm-hmm. You know, or are you just making it as easy as possible to make the fakery and not making it easy to detect it? I think that's a real responsibility on the creators of the tools.
1: Right. And and I mean, the other side of it is, and obviously it speaks to the, the work that, that Witness does, is, I mean, the, the power of video, the ability for citizens uh, to record history, to record human rights abuses, to document what what is happening and to be able to share those images with the world. Right. So, I mean, just how important is it that we're able to trust what it is we're seeing?
3: Yeah, it's absolutely critical. We When we held the meeting in Brazil around deepfakes, we were talking to activists in the favelas in Rio de Janeiro, and they said that over the past five years, the only cases where there's been a police killing, an extrajudicial killing, where they assassinate someone that has come anywhere close to justice is when there's a video. And, and they immediately recognized the challenge here is that not only will people claim that every video is false that's true, uh, they'll also try and circulate videos that have been modified in order to compromise the truth. And they'll try and create videos that show these activists and civic leaders doing things they never did. So I, th- I think it's a critical threat, and I don't think we can be complacent. I think, you know, there's sometimes a tendency in the media to sort of throw up the hands and say, you know, it's the end of truth. Let's move on. And frankly, if you look around the world at people who are using this tool, this, you know, explosion of video and social media for good, uh, it's too early to give up on that.
1: Indeed. Uh, much more. Witness.org. Sam, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks, Rob. All right. Take care. That is Sam Gregory, Program Director at uh, Witness. Witness.org. Uh, you can read more about some of the work they're doing. And uh, they were one of the organizations that have provided some, some input, some feedback to, to Facebook on how to shape this policy. And then Facebook recognizing that, that there is a responsibility uh, being the platform to ensure that, that they are not being used to spread these deep fake videos. So it it isn't going to apply uh, to any kind uh, of a doctored video. So it's it's not a blanket ban. So, for example, uh, something that's done as parody or satire wouldn't fall under this. Uh, Other kinds of doctored videos made with less sophisticated technology wouldn't fall under this. Uh, There was some controversy, when was that, last year, I think, uh, with a a clip of um, U.S. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi uh, that will, will still be allowed on Facebook. The ban wouldn't apply to that. Even the uh, deep fake video that someone made of Mark Zuckerberg himself. I don't know if you, you saw that video last year. Uh, that would fall within the satire category and would still be allowed on the Facebook platform. But yeah, I mean, it is, look, this really is something we need, need to be concerned about. This, this is unprecedented, this kind of technology. I think we've never been in that kind of situation where we can see a video of someone doing or saying something or something happening and not knowing whether it's real. What what appears to be a very clearly delivered speech by somebody. And I mentioned that Richard Nixon video off the top. Mentioned that Mark Zuckerberg deepfake video. You watch those and you would have no idea. That it was faked. It looks like a very clear video of that person saying those things. Sounds like their voice, the words appear to, to match the way the mouth is moving, all of it. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's good on Facebook to say, look, you're not going to use us to spread this stuff. And we're going to take a stand here. But how easy is it going to be to detect these videos? And let's say that somebody wants to, to do something for nefarious purposes on the eve of an election. A video drops showing a candidate, you know, allegedly doing or, or saying something, you know, maybe in a few days, it'll all be sorted out. But if the election's the next day, then what? Right. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of scary, the potential, not just to, to influence elections, but even just to discredit people. Well, look, I mean, doing taxes isn't fun. And then if you have to deal with the CRA, that's even less fun. Uh, and it's probably all a whole lot worse than if you're a business owner filing taxes for your business. Now, we, we got into this yesterday, uh, a conversation about this uh, survey the CRA did last year. I found that a whole lot of people who had to deal with the CRA were very dissatisfied with their experience. Not a surprise. And we heard a lot of firsthand stories from people yesterday about their own horror stories when it comes to dealing with the CRA. Uh, and as I say, I mean, it's all the more complex when it's a business filing taxes. And the need to deal with the CRA, even just to clarify things with the CRA, it is, you know, the, 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 the complexity of our tax system is, is quite something. And there's so much more to navigate when it comes to business owners. So when business owners have a question or need to clarify something, uh, it seems pretty reasonable that the CRA be there to provide some answers. Now, it can be difficult getting through to somebody of the CRA. You might have to sit on hold for a long time. That seems to be a very common experience. But there's another level of concern here. uh, The fact that that, um, business owners might not be getting access accurate information once they get through to somebody of the cra that's obviously problematic certainly if you call the cra you talk to an agent they tell you yes it's x y and z you're going to come away from that assuming that that's accurate and if it's not well that's problematic uh so this is all in a new study uh from the canadian federation of independent business uh their report cards on uh, cra call center and what business owners are dealing with Joining us to talk more about it is Dan Kelly, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, CFIB.ca. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Uh, Talk a bit more about this report card, why you do it, why it's important to highlight these, these issues and the challenges that business owners are facing.
2: Well, look, my organization is a a small business advocacy group. We're always trying to get uh, government to do a better job of the few things we wish government to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of the big interactions a lot of small businesses have is with their (laughs) tax master, with the Canada Revenue Agency. Uh, and, And service has been pretty bad for many, many years. It took us a long time to try to convince the CRA that they even had a problem in the first place. In fact, if I go back a few years, I've been with the organization 25, um, the CRA said it was technically impossible for somebody to either get a busy signal or to have a dropped call, despite the fact we heard about these kinds of examples from our members every single day. Uh, And only then did... Did, when we presented them with research and actually sh- did secret shopper type calls to the CRA call center and shared with them the results. Did they start to take it seriously they then tried tried to recreate their own surveys to mimic what we had done in fact upon freedom of information Act requests, they found out their service levels were even worse so we've been doing this ever since and and each every couple of years we do a touch point where we test the cra's call center and and give them a rating uh to to see how they're doing and unfortunately they're getting worse not better
1: Getting worse. Yeah, that is unfortunate. So, an overall grade of D in this report card, which is, uh, I believe, then a failing grade, is it not?
2: It is. Uh, the, the, You know, is. I've got to say that there was a couple things that, that, that did go positively for the CRA. They actually did drop fewer calls. Only 9% of calls were dropped by the agency itself, where, where they were just suddenly disconnected. Um, and most callers were able to get through to an agent within 30 minutes, even <laughs> with that very generous time frame that we, we established. The bigger concern, though, is that the accuracy of the information provided by the CRA call center agent him or herself, uh, was worse than it was the last time we did this in 2017. In fact, it, you know, 69% of the calls in, 20, in 2017 got a correct answer, and now it's down to 60% of calls that got a correct answer. 40% of the time, the information was either incomplete or just wrong. And that's unacceptable from, from my perspective. I mean, the CRA is not known for being particularly forgiving if we as taxpayers make mistakes. They, they assess penalties and interest, and if in serious cases they throw the book at you.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, shouldn't we as Canadians be able to expect that the, that the tax authority can actually provide us with accurate information, given that they are the agency that sets the policies in the first place?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a big problem. Look, I mean, it's... it's... An inconvenience, obviously, someone has to sit on hold for an hour or two just to, to talk to somebody. And, and, you know, that's something that can be addressed. But, yeah, the idea that, that the people who finally answer the phone don't know the right answer and are providing incorrect information, that's a much bigger problem. Uh, because I'm, I'm assuming that if, you know, the people who are receiving that information are going to come away from the conversation thinking that they've been properly advised of these things.
2: Yeah, and the, these things have real consequences. This isn't just some some irritation. Uh, if a business owner acts on that and then gets it wrong based on the call center information, uh, then they're audited a couple of years later. They they upon audit say, "Well, wait a minute, your your agent told me to do it this way." That's not going to be taken as as evidence of an excuse. They're they the government's not gonna the CRA is not going to forgive you the penalties and interest if that's the case. Uh, Only if you have some written evidence of the information that was incorrect are you going to be able to get off uh, and and not have to pay the bill in the first place. And and even more worrisome than that, uh, we did some questions around the new change, the changes, the positive changes the government put in place on the capital cost allowance, allowing business owners to write off capital investments a little bit quicker. The CRA agents, 25% of the time, even though these rules have been in place for six months, they gave... Wrong information. And what that means is that a taxpayer was not, would not be able to, to, to deduct as much as they would be eligible to deduct. That's money that they're not then reinvesting back into their business to grow their company, to, to hire more people. Uh, and, and that's a real shame
1: so what's your sense then of what what the problem is at CRA do they need more resources do they need better training what's I mean, what's the problem that needs to be fixed do you think well training is absolutely part of
2: this uh, I don't think it's a resource issue the CRA has been given huge amounts of additional uh, millions hundreds of millions of additional dollars over the last number of years uh, they've been unfortunately putting that all into audit uh, to beef up audit capacity but instead of trying to fix the problem I think we're where, we're, where the real need is, and that is to give taxpayers better quality information in the first place. Yes, there are people that are trying to cheat on their taxes and we need to have an arm of the CRA to go after them, But the vast majority of taxpayers, business or personal, are trying to do the right thing, trying to figure out the huge, confusing mess of rules the government throws at us and try to pay their fair share of taxes. And then when they have questions, if government's not able to at least give them quality information that they can take to the bank, then what the heck are we doing? Uh, and, and so training is definitely an element of this. We're also certainly encouraging small business owners, any of your listeners that own a small business, to use what's known as My Business Account with CRA, uh, where they can actually write their question, put it in writing through the CRA's website, and they get a written answer in their account if they have that, that written evidence, then if they're audited and it's found that the information they received is wrong, they're not going to be liable for the penalties and interest. So the call center, I think, avoiding the use of the call center uh, is probably one of the biggest fixes I would advise small business owners to, uh, to, to try to do themselves. But the call center itself really needs some improvements, too. Yeah.
1: I mean, one level, too, I suppose this is all a byproduct uh, of an overly complex tax system. The CRA doesn't design the tax system that falls to to our elected politicians and policymakers. I mean, does some of this, you know, the blame for this mess rest at, at their feet?
2: It's absolutely true. There's two other big factors. You've you've hit the nail on you've hit the nail on the head on one of them, and that is that uh, that when government creates new policies like those that big 2017 small business tax change that that the government surprised us with, uh, those rules then become more complicated. Add. Make it harder for taxpayers to figure out, but also make it harder for their own staff to be able to provide advice on. So simplifying tax rules is definitely part of this. Making fewer tax policies altogether, I think, would help. The other, though, is and I, I, I that that I think is pervasive among uh, at government, and that is the lack of accountability. There's really nothing short of murdering a colleague in the next cubicle that will get you to lose your government job, and. And that's a shame. You know, in the private sector, if somebody gives out bad information all the time, look, we're all human. We're going to make a mistake now and again. But if somebody does that consistently, you'll lose your job. That's almost impossible to happen for people who work for government, uh, certainly at the Canada Revenue Agency. So ensuring that there is a consequence uh, for staff that are giving out bad information on a consistent basis, testing that, and then and ensuring then that, you know, people are disciplined or lose their job in those kinds of situations, uh, I think, would also help in creating a, a cycle of accountability within the public sector itself.
1: All right. People can read more at CFIB.ca now. I mean, Dan, as you say, things are getting worse. I mean, does, does that suggest that the, the CFI or rather that the CRA rejects these findings or are they, are they not responding to, to this when, when you guys have put these reports out?
2: look uh, we've met with many good people at the CRA uh, many people that are uh, that are really trying to fix the, the the huge huge ship that is the Canada Revenue Agency unfortunately the call center is is probably one of the last bastions of reform uh, things have improved a little bit on the audit function we've seen some some improvements there some of the technology is a little bit better uh, but the policymaking and and the policy advice function at the CRA is is declining and, and that's where the investment is is absolutely needed they need to shift more resources to give taxpayers better quality information if they did that I suspect that they would need fewer auditors to go after the the you know to go after the system at the end
1: all right as I mentioned cFIb.CA Dan thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon appreciate it anytime that is uh, Dan Kelly, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Uh, their latest report card on the CRA call center and a failing grade and things are getting worse. That's not good at all. Not at all. Uh, this is the fourth time the CFIB has audited the business inquiries line of the Canada Revenue Agency call center. Now, as they point out, in the past year, the CRA has introduced a new phone system to address previous inadequacies. And on the positive side of things... The number of drop calls is down. The number of busy signals is down. Okay, so that's good. However, average wait times to speak with agents are much longer than the findings from previous years. Now 15 minutes to reach a frontline agent instead of two minutes. Now about an hour to reach a senior agent. The longest wait time was 40 minutes for the first agent and two hours for a senior agent to come on the line. Previously, the longest wait had been 15 minutes. So that's a pretty shocking difference. This meant that a higher percentage of calls could not be resolved compared to previous years because callers could not spend hours waiting for an answer. But yeah, the biggest problem here clearly is the fact that only 60% of the calls are provided with correct and complete information. So in other words, 40% of business owners who are calling the CRA are being told something that's not accurate that's untrue or wrong. And, yeah, look, you know the reality of dealing with the CRA. You think you're going to get the benefit of the doubt for making a mistake? Of course not. What kind of response are you going to get? Say, well, that's what the other guy I talked to told me. I don't think you're going to get sympathy. So if you can't trust what you're being told, then, then what the hell's the point of the call center?